We're continuing our series through the prophets. So for those of you who were in the other class last semester, you're going to pick up with us in the uh, prophets on uh, part two of my overview of the Old Testament, which is Isaiah through Malachi. So last time, you remember I started out with just an introduction to the prophets. And this time, with much fear and trepidation, I'm going to teach on the issue of the prophets and the New Testament. And the reason I feel need, the need to do this is because this is obviously an area of great controversy. So depending on where you're coming from in terms of your theological tradition and your convictions about things like eschatology, you're going to come to you know, prophecies that you know well and have ideas about how those prophecies are fulfilled in the New Testament through Christ and that you might find that when I come to those places if we end up talking about how a particular prophecy is fulfilled or that you might find wait a second that's not how I've understood it and so just my goal this morning is to introduce you to some of the issues here having to do with how the oracles of the prophets are fulfilled in the New Testament through Jesus and to lay out some of the different views that there are and then I'm going to plant my flag and sort of nail my colors to the mass, tell you where I'm coming from in this class so that even if you don't agree with me, which I'm not expecting that everyone will agree with me, you'll at least know where I'm coming from and a little bit of why, although there is just simply so much to be said on this subject. I mean, entire books, uh, many books are written on this, these types of issues that there's no way I'm even going to attempt to dive into all the issues. But I'm going to tell you a couple of reasons why I fall out the way that I do. And this is an area where I, I recognize that I'm coming, I've, I've been very open with the church ever since I came, uh, where I stand in terms of my eschatology. And, uh, you know, people probably were like, okay, that's fine. Uh, not really knowing how that would affect things. But it's in a class like this on the prophets where you will we'll see maybe some differences between where I'm coming from and where maybe some of you are coming from in your own convictions and your own eschatology, etc. So, um, that's why I want to just take at least one class and talk about this. Fortunately, I think for the most part, we're all going to see things relatively the same, and I'm not going to get into a ton of detail on specific oracles and how they're fulfilled, but I did want to at least take one class and talk about this issue so that we have some preparation for when we dive into this subject. Okay, why don't we start with a word of prayer, and then... And then we'll dive in, and then hopefully there'll be no time for questions at the end. (laughs) So, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for another Lord's Day. We thank you that you have granted us uh, the great privilege of knowing Christ and receiving uh, all the blessings of the new covenant in Him. We thank you that in a great mystery... You have caused the blessings of the new covenant to not only be given to a remnant of believing Jews, but also to a remnant of believing Gentiles as well, and made us one new man in Christ, and reconciled us together to yourself through him. 
and made us a dwelling place for your spirit. And we thank you for the fact that we come today because of that great work of redemption in our lives, a work that was foretold by the prophets. And we thank you that what was written in the prophets has come to pass through Christ and that we have an interest in it by faith and by your grace. And we pray that you would please so work in our souls this morning that you would give us uh, a greater understanding, that you would, Lord, help us to at least, if nothing else, understand some of the issues involved with interpreting the prophets so that we might have a better grasp of our Bibles. And Lord, be caused to think more deeply about these things wherever we fall out. And I do pray as these things are matters of some controversy in the church that you would please grant us a unity of mind, a spirit of humility, a willingness to love each other even across differences. And we pray that you would bless our time this morning to that end and as well as the rest of our our Lord's Day of worship, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so let's dive in. Here's the big question that we're addressing this morning. As we walk through the prophets, we're going to come across many oracles in the prophets that predict uh, a redemption that God was going to bring about Uh, in the last days through the Messiah. So I talked about when you look at the prophets, you have one sense in which the prophets are what um, they've been called by one scholar that I appreciated, covenant enforcers. In other words, they came, they condemned Israel for their covenant breaking. They called them to turn and begin keeping the covenant again, and they warned them of coming judgment if they did not. And of course, we know that they did not, so judgment came. And here's where you see another element of the prophetic message, and that is that on the other side of this coming judgment, out of the ashes of their ruin would come, in the last days, a redemption. A redemption that would be an ultimate fulfillment of the ancient promises, the promises to Abraham, for instance. And it would be a permanent and global redemption. Okay, so you have these oracles that we're going to come across in the prophets that are these, what I'm just going to be calling redemption oracles through the Messiah in the last days. And everyone agrees that when you get to the New Testament, the New Testament announces that Jesus is the promised Messiah foretold in these redemption oracles. Okay, the the greater David, as it were, the king who would come and restore Israel. So, for instance, this is just one text, but in Acts chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, it says this, But what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets, that his Christ would suffer... He thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. So, here we have a clear example of how the New Testament is saying that what the prophets foretold about the Messiah has been fulfilled now 
through Jesus. He's the Messiah. So pretty much everyone agrees about that. I mean, if you don't agree that Jesus is the Messiah, then you're not a Christian, right? So that's not where the controversy lies. But primarily, the issue where there is debate is about how all the rest of the details of these redemption oracles of the prophets are going to be fulfilled in the future. Okay, So if you start thinking about you're reading through the prophets and all the things they talk about in, the, in those redemption oracles, things like we're going to return from the land for, to the land, uh, Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt, the temple is going to be rebuilt, and, and other things as well, a Davidic kingdom where the, the Messiah will reign from Jerusalem over the nations. That's where the debate lies. How are those elements of these redemption oracles that we find throughout the prophets, how are they going to be fulfilled in the future? The Messiah has come, right? But how about the rest of these redemption oracles? And in fact, you can see that this was a point of tension, even with the apostles themselves in Acts chapter 1, when, do you remember what the disciples said to Jesus just before he ascended into heaven? Yeah, but Lord, what about, when are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? There's this sense that not all that the prophecies had said had yet come to pass, right? And there's a sense in which even someone like John the Baptist was wondering, right? Because you remember in his ministry, he's saying, you know, the, the axe is laid to the foot of the tree. He's come with his winnowing fork in hand. He's going to bring judgment. But then Jesus comes and John the Baptist ends up not being swept away in the glory of the coming kingdom with judging the enemies of Israel and establishing the Davidic kingdom, but he ends up in jail, right? And he sends messages to Jesus, are you the one or should we be looking for someone else? And, and Jesus points to all the things that he'd been doing, his miracles. And he says, you know, go tell John what you've seen. In other words, I am the one. But what we recognize is that here again is this question. How will all the things that the prophet said be fulfilled in the future? We all agree Jesus is the Messiah. But what about the rest of the details of these redemption oracles? So you guys see the question? This is the big question that, about which there is actually much debate. Unfortunately, we all agree in evangelical circles about the most important thing, that Jesus is the Messiah. And within that, about his redemptive work, about salvation by grace through faith alone, none of those things are in question here. But there is some debate about how all the details of these oracles will be fulfilled. Okay. Now, here's what I want to start with, what I'm calling the historic position. In other words, if you look back into the early church fathers and on down through church history, how, would, how was this question answered by the church historically? You know, some people might not agree with what I'm calling the historic position here. I'm not trying to be derogatory by saying this is the historic position and there and there's these other positions. I'm just saying that this by way of fact is the position 
broadly speaking, while there are divisions among, say, even the church fathers on these issues, um, yet there are some broad things that we can say about how the church has answered this question going back to the beginning. Now, pretty much everyone obviously agreed that Jesus was the Messiah foretold by the prophets, and that Jesus is bringing the redemption oracles of the prophets to fulfillment for his new covenant people, for the church. In other words, it's very clear when you look back into the, old, in the, the, the history of the church that from the beginning, the, the church understood the prophecies of the, the prophetic oracles being fulfilled to them, to the church, those who are in Christ. And this included... The church obviously included both a remnant of believing Jews and a remnant of believing Gentiles. So I wrote up there Ephesians 3, 1 through 6. Let's actually, if you have your Bibles, let's turn there real quick. Paul says this, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, so a prisoner of the Messiah, I told my kids the other night, let's not mistake Christ as Jesus' last name, it was a title, right? It, was, it meant that he was the Messiah promised in the prophets. So he's understanding Jesus as the, prof, as the promised Messiah, and he's a servant of Jesus. I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that he's given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has, been made, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, especially when you look at it in context, uh, at the, the end of chapter 2 talks about all this in more detail but essentially what Paul was saying is that in a mystery something that had been previously hidden now revealed the Gentiles are fellow heirs with the Jews of have become fellow heirs with the Jews of the promise now you might there might be debate about what he means by the promise, but I'm going to argue that what his basic message is that the promises made to Israel in times past have been fulfilled to, as the prophet said, a remnant of believing Jews. However, in a mystery now revealed, a remnant of believing Gentiles has been grafted in and they have become fellow heirs of these promises so that they are now one new covenant people in Christ and unexpectedly and you say well didn't the Old Testament talk about it yes to some degree but it's been fully revealed it wasn't revealed in the same way as it is now that they are now members of the household of God alongside believing Jews and heirs of the promise and so this is how the church going back to the beginning understood the fulfillment of the oracles is that they were, along with believing Jews, obviously Jesus was a Jew, the earliest Christians were Jews, but then Gentiles started spilling into the church as well. And together they were receiving the fulfillment of what had been foretold in the Old Testament. And so this is 
the historic position. The fulfillment of the redemption oracles of the prophets is being fulfilled to the church. Now, that being said, what became clear is that not all at once, that there were elements of the prophecies that would not be fulfilled until the second coming, and that there was a sense in which the prophecies were being fulfilled in a now and not yet way. So the easiest, the easiest example of that is the new creation. The Isaiah the prophet talked about the Lord delivered an oracle through Isaiah the prophet in which he talked about there would be a new heavens and a new earth. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is. New creation. Cites Isaiah 65, 17 about the new creation and the old things have passed and new has come. In other words, that what the prophets foretold has begun coming to pass. But of course, not in its entirety, right? Because you know from Revelation 21 that there's a more universal and full fulfillment coming in the future. So, do you see now and not yet? Or think of the oracles of judgment against Israel's enemies. Has, is there any sense in which the prediction of the prophets that God would come and judge their enemies and liberate them from their enemies, is there any sense in which that was fulfilled at the cross and resurrection of Christ? What do you think? Yeah, so what enemies were dis- defeated at the cross? Right, so they we were liberated from Satan's tyranny, sin was definitively defeated, guilt taken away. Also, if you think about the world, the world is passing away, the new creation is already beginning to break in. What about our own flesh? We were we died to our old sin nature. And now we live in Christ. So there's a sense in which the enemies of God's people began to be judged. They were defeated in a definitive way in the cross and resurrection. You remember Colossians chapter 2, he says that Christ triumphed over them at the cross. However, we know Satan still lives. Sin still remains. The world is still there. So there's a sense in which the final fulfillment of all those of that promise of the defeat of Israel's enemies awaits the last day. You know, that's what 1 Corinthians 15, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And in the meantime, what's happening? Jesus is at his right hand. And what does Psalm 110 say is happening even now? And all his enemies are being put under his feet, right? So... Now, not yet. And you could go through the oracles of the prophets and see that much of what they said has begun to be fulfilled through Christ's first coming is being fulfilled now. But there's a not yet component as well. So some people have talked about this understanding of the fulfillment of the prophets in terms of inauguration and consummation. They have begun to be fulfilled but have not yet come to their full fulfillment. All right. So that's what I would say. I'm characterizing that as the historic position. However, you really have to talk about historic positions, right? Because there were differences, even if you go back and you were to read the um, 
the writings of the church fathers, it's not long before you begin to see quite a bit of difference between how they understood some of the oracles of the prophets. And uh, really, I want to talk about two positions here. One is what has been called now historic premillennialism, and the other is what has been called now amillennialism, or ah being a privative, right? So if you're talking about atheist or an atheist, what are you saying? No God, right? Well, so amillennialism would be no millennialism. It's a little bit deceptive because that's, it doesn't mean that they actually believe that there is no millennium or no millennial kingdom, but simply that it's not something that is coming in the future, but something that is a present reality. Okay, so I want to I go through these. You guys are either cringing in your seats right now or licking your chops <laughs> to see what I'm going to say here. Let's start with historic premillennialism. So here... The idea is that when Christ comes again, he's going to establish an earthly kingdom that will last for a thousand years. Now, there are many texts that people would look to here, but primarily the idea of a thousand year kingdom is coming from Revelation 20, 1 through 10. And uh, the final judgment and the new creation are not going to happen until after this 1,000 year kingdom. So the order of events from this perspective is that Christ is going to come again. He's going to establish a millennial kingdom, a thousand year kingdom upon the earth. And then at the end of the thousand years, there will be the final judgment and the new creation. Now, from this perspective, both in the past and today, those who hold this view would see many aspects of the redemption oracles and the prophets as being fulfilled to the church, still, right? To the new covenant community, Jew and Gentile. But that many aspects of the oracles of the prophets are going to be fulfilled to the church in a more literal way during this 1,000-year earthly kingdom. And I say more literal because they don't believe that everything is going to be in the oracles of the prophets going to be fulfilled in a sort of straightforward literal way however um, many things will be fulfilled in a more literal way during this 1000 year earthly kingdom so let me just show you a couple of passages here just this is sort of easy examples but Isaiah chapter 11 Isaiah 11 1 through 9 if you turn there, we're going to look at this oracle. This is a redemption oracle from the prophet Isaiah. You probably heard this. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, and the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Now, what's that talking about? Who is that figure? Yeah, so that's obviously a portrayal of the Messiah, the coming of the Messiah. 
and a description of his messianic ministry. Uh, He would be anointed by the Spirit. He would rule and judge the nations, right? Now, look what it says in verses 6 through 9. The wolf shall lie down with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them, the cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox, the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. All you moms are cringing, right? You shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Okay, so it's a very interesting oracle. You have the coming of the prophet, or or the Messiah, his rule over the nations, and during that time there's a description of the earth as being filled with the knowledge of the Lord, and there's aspects of it that indicate that there's going to be no more curse, that the effects of the curse will be reversed. Now, there's a parallel oracle to this, Isaiah chapter 65. In the prophecies of Isaiah, you see another oracle which uses much of the same language. Let's start in verse 17. You'll see the parallel here. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fulfill out, fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the, sin, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and lamb shall graze together. Uh, So here you see the parallel, right? The overlap. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. So the oracles end the same way. They have similar language description. It's a little bit different, though. And here, what's interesting is you have mention of a sinner dying 100 years old, and you have still people being mean described as dying, just dying a lot later, right? So in this understanding that how is this going to be, where there seems to be some kind of renewal of the created order, when the Messiah comes, some kind of renewal, but still not, still not, still there's going to be death, still there's going to be, you see what I'm saying? So this view views all of this as being fulfilled, or at least by and large, this description being fulfilled in this 1,000 year millennial kingdom. And so there's all kinds of ideas about how that's going to be. Maybe there'll be some kind of limited transformation of the created order but it won't be fully freed from uh, the effects of the curse. And so that's the historic premillennial idea. They would agree, of course, that there would be aspects of the prophet's oracles, you know, descriptions of the final judgment of all things, right? And the final renewal of all things that will await the end of the millennial kingdom and the eternal state. 
So if you read, you can read descriptions like this in church fathers like Irenaeus and Justin Martyr. Or today there would be people like John Piper and Albert Moeller who would hold to this historic premillennial view. And so when it comes to the prophets, this is the issue, right? There's going to be aspects of the redemption oracles of the prophets that are going to be fulfilled to the church in a more literal way during this 1,000-year earthly kingdom. Okay, let me just walk through this other view, which also has a long pedigree in the church. And that is that the millennial kingdom spoken of in the vision recorded in Revelation 20, 1 through 10, was actually just a symbolic portrayal of the time between the two comings. So, this is wrapped up with a larger way of understanding of how to interpret Revelation, that it, it contains visions that are filled with symbols. And so you have to understand what the symbols mean. And so they're, they're understanding that vision as being a symbolic portrayal of the time between the two comings. So that the millennial kingdom is not something that's going to happen after the second coming, but something that we are in right now. And their understanding then of the prophets is that the prophets spoke by often in their oracles by way of old covenant types. In other words that the nation of Israel provided these patterns that anticipated, prefigured, and pointed forward to new covenant realities. So things like the nation of Israel itself, uh, the city of Jerusalem, the temple, the priests, the sacrifices, all of these were types. They were patterns that weren't never intended to be ultimate. After all, the old covenant was replaced by the new covenant. But they had a purpose in redemptive history, and part of that purpose was to prefigure and point forward to new covenant realities, things that Jesus would bring in uh, through his new covenant ministry. And so what they would argue is that when you look at the redemption oracles of the prophets, they were often speaking about future realities, but they were using the types of the old covenant to describe them. After all, this is what people knew, right? But what they're going to argue is that the fulfillment of these oracles wasn't going to come by way of the types, but by way of what they foreshadowed, the anti-types, right? Things like uh, the church, the heavenly Jerusalem, the new creation, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit within the new covenant community, that these, these are the ways in which the, old, the oracles of the prophets uh, are realized, not in a straightforwardly literal way, but by way of a typological fulfillment. So in other words, instead of a temple being rebuilt, where does the Holy Spirit dwell now? In His people, there's no need for the walls and the curtains anymore. So you see, what the temple foreshadowed has been realized in the church is what this position is going to argue for. And therefore, when they look at the oracles of the prophets and talk about how, is there, how are they going to be fulfilled, they're understanding this typological relationship between the fulfillment and the uh, oracles themselves, the language of the oracles. And by the way, the way that typology works is that the type... There's always an escalation by, from when you go from the type to the antitype. So, what is greater? 
the Old Covenant temple or the New Covenant temple? What's greater, the Old Covenant priest or the New Covenant priest? What's greater, the Old Covenant sacrifice or the New? There's always a escalation so that we don't, we're not let down by the way that these are fulfilled in the New Testament. Like, oh, that's not what the prophet... No, we're like, oh, it's even better than what the prophet said, right? And then finally, in this way, this typological fulfillment, the fulfillment of the redemption oracles of the prophets has begun with the first coming of Christ and will be completed with the second coming. So I already mentioned, you know, 2 Corinthians 5.17. We just read... From Isaiah 65, 17. For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, and behold, the old is gone as new has come. Well, he's citing verse 17. The former things have not been remembered or come to mind. So, Paul is saying, even now, that prophecy in Isaiah 65 that we just read is already beginning to be fulfilled. But... We also have Revelation 21 where it says, Behold, I will create a new heavens and a new earth, right? And then he describes a time when there will be no more curse, no more tears, no more crying. So now and not yet. They've begun to be fulfilled, but will reach their ultimate consummation at the end. Okay, so if you want to see this position, you could look at St. Augustine. Many people say that Augustine was the first one to hold to this position. I do not believe that is correct. Actually, by any stretch of the imagination, there's been a great book written by a Reformed scholar who's done a deep dive into the early church fathers and argued that while you don't have people before Augustine you, you know, speaking of it as, as explicitly, there's very good evidence that uh, a view that would have been aligned with on millennialism was actually present alongside these views going back uh, before Augustine. But nevertheless, Augustine in the third century, it was pretty much the standard view in the Roman Catholic Church all the way through the medieval period. The reformers would have held this. And then, of course, modern reform people like, you know, John Murray from Westminster. And, uh, you know, I was trying to think of someone that you guys would all know, because most of us don't know people who. You know, hold to amillennialism, and there's a lot of people out there, but someone like Vody Bauckham uh, would hold to that position. You probably know him. There is a more recent view, and uh, I say more recent, I'm not trying to be derogatory by, in by any means, but it, the fact is, is that it just didn't exist before the 1800s. But in the mid to late 1800s, another way of answering the question that I put at the beginning, you know, how are the oracle the details of the redemption oracles of the prophets fulfilled another way was developed in the UK by a man named John Nelson Darby it came to be called dispensationalism and at the heart i think in terms of this issue the heart of dispensationalism is the conviction that the redemption oracles of the prophets have to be fulfilled in a very literal way to the nation of Israel. In other words, Davidic king, Davidic king. Land of Israel, land of Israel. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Temple, temple. Priests, priests. Sacrifices, sacrifices, right? There has to be a straightforward, literal fulfillment of all the oracle details of the oracles to the nation of Israel, to whom they were originally given. And... Uh, 
What they argue is that when the nation of Israel rejected the Messiah when he came, God put this on hold and did an unexpected work of salvation among the Gentiles, which resulted in the church. And so, at least the older dispensationalists would have said that the church is like this unforeseen parenthesis in redemptive history that, that wasn't foretold in the prophets, right? In the future, though, according to this view, the Lord will remove the church. This parenthesis will be over. The Lord will remove the church through the rapture, and after a seven-year tribulation period will return, the Lord will return to establish a 1,000-year kingdom upon the earth. And here's where there is some similarity with the historic premillennial view, right? Premillennial being the Lord returns before he sets up a millennial kingdom. And during this millennial kingdom, and here's where this view is different from the historic premillennial view, the church is gone. The oracles are not being fulfilled to the church, Jew and Gentile. The church is raptured away, and now he's going to fulfill the prophecies in a literal way to the nation of Israel. So the millennial kingdom will be very Israeli, Jewish in nature. All right, so this would be people like Lewis Berry Schaefer, Charles Ryrie, and today, modern day, John MacArthur, Steve Lawson. Although, like any view, there's always nuances and differences between forms of dispensationalism. I would add in here that there has been a modification that's arisen lately called progressive dispensationalism. And the only reason I bring it up is because it does pertain to the particular question we're dealing with. So in the 1980s, there was a significant modification to the dispensational view called progressive dispensationalism. And essentially, they acknowledge that the historic they acknowledge the historic position that the redemption oracles of the prophets are being fulfilled to the church. So unlike older dispensationalists who would have said, no, the prophets, the oracles, those redemption oracles aren't for the church, they're for Israel, although God did in an unexpected way save Gentiles, that's not what the prophets were talking about. But this modern, these dispensationalists acknowledge boy, there's some real problems with that view. And so they would acknowledge the historic position that yes, the prophecies are being fulfilled to the church. However, it's a both and, right? But they also maintain that they will also be fulfilled in a very literal way to the nation of Israel. So there's still a rapture, there's still tribulation and the millennial kingdom that's all about fulfilling the prophecies in a literal way to the nation of Israel. So it's sort of a both-and mediating position. And they do believe that there are some aspects of the ancient prophecies of the prophets that are going to apply only to the nation. So this would be people that you may have heard or you may not have. John Feinberg, Daryl Baugh, Craig Blazing, I think it's Robert Saucy. If you, if you were to look up, this is sort of the seminal book on this issue, but I'm sure you guys have all heard of this. But Okay, now let me just say... This is the whole point of me doing this exercise, is to tell you where I'm coming from. Because you'll see it, if you have eyes to see it, in the class. And I didn't want any of you guys to be caught off guard and be like, what in the world is he doing with the prophecies? So first, I would hold to the historic position, not the more recent dispensational view. And I would hold to the amillennial position, not the historic premillennial view. 
Now, obviously, you looked at all the names on all three of those views, right? People that I respect, that I would love, that I would consider brothers in Christ. Uh, Even within our eldership, we have some that are in different ones of these views. Uh, So I don't have any animosity toward or (laughs) anything toward, you know, I love John MacArthur, even though I would differ with him on this issue. Obviously, someone like Al Mohler, boy, I've learned a lot from Al Mohler, even though we have a slight difference on these views, all right? So... But I want you to know where I'm coming from. I want to kind of plant my flag. So, you know, in general, I just think this view has the least problems with it. And I think it best reflects the way that the New Testament itself interprets the oracles of the prophets. That's a sort of summary. I do have two more slides. One where I'm, I'm going to give you... The two slides are going to give you just some general reasons why... I've adopted this view. I'm not going to get into all the weeds, but I want you to understand something of what I'm thinking. And perhaps I'll go through those slides because if I don't, a lot of the questions may, I may end up just covering ground that I'm going to cover in these slides anyways. So let's do that. First, so why do I, have I opted for this route? Because I wasn't always here. You know, I grew up in this church. I would say that in the history of this church, the big question going back to when I was a kid, was, was never, you know, amillennial or historic premillennial or dispensational. It was always, you know, pre-trib, mid-trib or post-trib rapture, you know. All the other stuff was assumed. So how did I get from there to where I am now? Well, I think a negative reason is this, that in my view, the redemption oracles of the prophets describe the redemption of Israel using old covenant categories that we now know from the New Testament have become obsolete by the coming of Jesus Christ. So, for instance, the prophets speak of the Jerusalem temple being rebuilt. The most famous description is Ezekiel 40-48. through This is a rendering of what the new temple would look like if it was built according to that description, Ezekiel 40 through 47 or 48. But you also have others. You have uh, the famous passage in Haggai 2. You remember where the people are looking at the temple that they had rebuilt after the return out of exile, and some are rejoicing and others are weeping, and the prophet says this, Fear not. For thus says the Lord, Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations, so that the treasures of all the nations shall come in, and I will fill this house, the temple, with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So there's another prophecy of a restoration of the temple so that it would be even greater than uh, the former temple. But And then also something like Isaiah chapter 2, where it's not talking about giving details about the building like in Ezekiel 40, but it does say, uh, Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord, what's the house of the Lord? The temple shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. So there's 
a mountain and the house the, the house of the Lord is there and the nations are streaming into it, right? So the prophecies, for instance, speak of the Jerusalem temple as being rebuilt on many occasions. It also speaks of Levitical priests ministering there. Levitical priests. So, for instance, in the oracles of Ezekiel, uh, 43 and the description of the rebuilt temple in verses 18 through 27 you have son of man thus says the Lord God these are the ordinances of the altar on the day when it is erected this new temple and the altar there for offering burnt offerings upon it and for throwing blood against it by the way what what kind of sacrifices would require blood like sin offerings right And you shall give to the Levitical priests of the family of Zadok, who draw near to minister to me, declares the Lord, a bull from the herd for a sin offering. So you have these rebuilt temple, but you have the description of Levitical priests. And there they are. And that's not the only place, by the way. For the sake of time, I'm not going to go there, but you also see it in Jeremiah 33, Isaiah 56. Um, At least in Isaiah, you have sacrifices being offered. That's not the only thing. You have Levitical priests offering old covenant sacrifices. But here's my point. When I come to the New Testament in Hebrews 7 through 10, it seems that the writer of Hebrews is going to great lengths to say that the old covenant institutions of the temple, the Levitical priesthood, and the old covenant animal sacrifices were types. He uses the language of copies. And he says that they were insufficient. And that's why we needed Christ. He's our great high priest who offered himself as a once-for-all sacrifice. And that he serves in the true temple, not made with hand, not in the copies of the old covenant. And so, and you see over and again that he says explicitly, hey, when this once-for-all sacrifice has been made, there's no more need for any sacrifices for sins. And he says, now that we have the new Our great high priest, he is a priest forever. The old covenant priests kept dying, and you needed more of them. Plus, they needed to offer sacrifices for their own sins. Plus, the sacrifices they offered could never take away sin. So, you see, this is why he says, once the new has come, the old is become obsolete and is passing away. So, if we turn to Hebrews chapter 8... Verse 13, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now, my point is simply this. How do you understand these old covenant prophecies then? Do you say that they must be all fulfilled in a very literal way? In other words, a new temple with new Levitical priests and new sacrifices? Here's where I, over the years, I've come to say, I just don't think so. I think... The prophet was speaking by way of the types and shadows, but the fulfillment comes by way of new covenant realities that make those old covenant realities obsolete. And guess what? They're better. We don't need those new. We would never go back to the shadows, in other words. So I see this as a clear indication that we shouldn't expect these oracles to be fulfilled in a straightforwardly literal way. In other words, there's going to come a time when there's going to have to be this temple and Levitical priests and sacrifices offered again. Okay, so that's the, the negative reason. The positive reason I've landed where I am is because I believe the New Testament, I'm arguing, 
where I'm coming from, seems to view the redemption oracles of the prophets as being fulfilled not in a straightforwardly literal way, but by way of their antitype. Now, how do I see this? Well, take that passage that we read. If you go back to Isaiah um, 65. Isaiah 65, 17. Now, this passage does have things in it that seem like if this was to be fulfilled in a straightforwardly literal way, then it can't be talking about the eternal state, right? Because there's death still, there's sinners still, right? And yet, what does the first verse of the oracle say? Behold, I will create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered to mine. Well, if you go to your cross-references, the New Testament seems to tell us how this will be fulfilled, right? Revelation 21. The vision says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And if you go down a little ways, it says... He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So my argument is that the New Testament seems to indicate how that oracle would be fulfilled. And that rather than understanding it of having to be fulfilled point by point in a sort of straightforwardly literal way, the New Testament understands that it's being fulfilled in the new creation. And that the language of, you know, long life, etc., was simply a way of, of foreshadowing, using the categories of things that they would understand. It's foreshadowing um, realities that were even better, where there was actually no death. So another example would be the New Jerusalem. So let, if you go to Jeremiah 33, this is one of the great, I mentioned before, Jeremiah 31 through 33 is often called the Book of Consolation, because this is where most of the redemption oracles in Jeremiah are listed. And uh, sorry, if you start in Jeremiah 31, and you have um, 38 through 40. All right, so 38 through 40, here's what the redemption oracle says. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city, what city is that? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. When the city shall be rebuilt. Say, so Jeremiah is living before the destruction of Jerusalem. I mean, he did live after it as well, but he's probably prophesying here before. But he, he knew and was telling people that it was going to be destroyed. But now he's saying, on the other side of that, out of the ashes of disruption, the days are coming when the city shall be rebuilt. And then he goes and describes all of the, you know, the towers being rebuilt. And it says, he shall, it shall not be plucked up or overthrown anymore forever. If you go a little bit farther in chapter 33... Verses 10 through 11. 33, 10 through 11. Thus says the Lord, In the place of which you say it is a waste without man or beast, in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate, without man or inhabitant or beast, there shall be heard again the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the voices of those who sing as they bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord. You see, there it is. Rebuilt Jerusalem temple, sacrifices. These are in the redemption oracles on the other side of the judgment. And by the way, they're wrapped up with the oracles about the new covenant and the coming of the Messiah. How's this going to be fulfilled? Well, I just want to point you, I think the New Testament tells us how 
the oracles of a rebuilt and vibrant Jerusalem are fulfilled. Go to Galatians chapter 4. Now remember, who is Paul talking to? A bunch of Jews? Well, there was, might have been, there was probably some Jews in the church there. But predominantly, Galatia, modern-day Turkey, I mean, this was Gentile territory, right? In fact, that was part of the reason he's writing. He wanted to tell these Gentile Christians, don't, have, don't listen to people who are coming down and telling you in order to be saved, you have to be circumcised, right? But listen to what he says. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. He's saying the present Jerusalem and its inhabitants, right? Primarily unbelieving Jews. They correspond to Hagar, who didn't receive the promise. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. And then he goes on to say in verse 31, So brothers, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. We are the children of Sarah who received the promise. We are the seed of Abraham, he would say in chapter 3, the true children of Abraham by faith. We belong to the Jerusalem above. And you say, well, what's the Jerusalem above? Well, do you remember? I can't go there because of time here, but Hebrews chapter 12, right? The heavenly Jerusalem where the saints already made perfect are and the angels in festal garments and Christ is there. And then in Revelation 21, what's going to happen to the heavenly Jerusalem? It comes down out of heaven into the new heavens and the new earth. So my point is just that I think the New Testament indicates that those prophecies about a restored Jerusalem actually are fulfilled in this heavenly Jerusalem, whereas the earthly Jerusalem is relegated to being equivalent to Hagar. What about the new temple? Well, it is interesting. The, the most detailed and explicit description of a rebuilt temple is in Ezekiel 40-48. Did you know, I think, that the New Testament actually tells us how that particular prophecy is fulfilled? Because when you come to Revelation 21, and let me, I'm actually going to put a slide up here. In Revelation 21, you have a description of the new Jerusalem. Do you remember that? After the new creation... He's given a vision. He's taken to a high hill and he's given a vision of the city. And when you go through this description of the new Jerusalem, guess what? There is allusion after allusion after allusion to the description of the new temple in Ezekiel 40 through 47. I mean, it's explicit. There's a river running out of it. The tree of life is on either side. The leaves are for the healing of the nation. Nothing unclean will enter it. Its length this says the length and width is equal. You remember that picture? It's like a square. Here it's the length and width and height are equal. Three gates on each side. The 12 tribes of Israel, 12 tribes of... I mean, it's the same. It's like the author is telling us what was foretold by Ezekiel will be fulfilled in the New Jerusalem. Except you say, but that's Jerusalem and that was talking about a temple. Well, it is interesting, isn't it? In the description of the New Jerusalem, there is no temple, it says. But it is interesting that God dwells in the New Jerusalem, right? There's no temple there because it's like the whole city is a temple. There's no more sin. 
There's no more need for barriers and curtains. Just It's filled with the glory of the Lord, the whole city. And it's also interesting, that many scholars have pointed this out, that whereas Ezekiel's prophecy described this, the, the city temple as a square, Revelation 21 describes it as a cube. So this is why this, this picture here. Again, this is symbolic vision, but it, but it is quite striking that the Holy of Holies was a cube in the Old Testament. So that it's, it's as if the vision is indicating that, you know, temple and Jerusalem have come together here. That the whole city is the dwelling place of God. Which would make sense because when you read the Old New Testament, there is temples mentioned in the New Testament. One temple. The church, the people of God are described as a dwelling place for the Lord. That is being built up into a holy temple in the Lord, Ephesians 2. So you see, Christ comes, he's the cornerstone, he starts building a temple, which is his people. It's being built until the last stone is put in, and then the end, the consummation is the temple comes down out of heaven, like the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven like a temple dwelt by the Spirit. It's the bride of Christ into the new creation. So you think, I, see, I, think, I don't think we need to look for a literal fulfillment of that rebuilt temple because the New Testament tells us there's something far grander at work here. So that's, these are just a, a hint at the positive reasons why I've gone the way that I have. I could point you to other resources if you wanted to see articulations for the other views. I'm not going to argue for them here because they're not my view. But if you have questions, and if you want to be pointed to resources that would you know, articulate the other positions, I could do that to, for you as well. But this is the, I want you to see where I plant my flag so that you can know where I'm coming from as we go through this series on the oracles of the prophets. I'm not trying to be overly controversial since we've come to a section of scripture where it's like, okay, we've got to talk about these things because we can't really avoid them. Um, We're going to have differences, perhaps, and that's okay. So you don't have to agree with me. I do think I'm right, otherwise... (laughs) I wouldn't think I was right, right? If I didn't think I was right, I wouldn't... But I I do think that this is what the Bible teaches. But again, there are many brothers in Christ, solid, who would disagree with me. And uh, that's okay. We can function with our disagreements. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for... Just our time this morning. I, I do pray, Lord, that that uh, you would, Lord, grant us hearts of humility, including myself, that, um, Lord, on this issue about which there was much debate, that you would help us to have convictions that we develop by studying your scripture, but give each other room as well um, to hold different views. And I pray that no one this morning would feel attacked or Uh, who might not share my views and that they might know that the liberty to work out their own convictions in these matters. But I pray, Lord, that as we walk through the prophets, that you would, as we begin to focus on Isaiah next week and walk through all the prophets, that despite some of these differences that we might have, you might just show us the glory of Christ, the glory of the gospel, the glory of your saving grace in these wonderful books uh, and the oracles of these men who spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We pray that you would uh, give us understanding and insight into them for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.